last summer when we hit those all-time records, first of all, we'd already had in place policies that were enforcing mitigation, which we don't have now. And at that time, when you looked at those rising numbers, the rate of rise was concave down. So things were starting to slow down as we were approaching a peak. But we are still concave up in our curves. So everything doesn't look good right now. At the end of the day, you cannot let people die unnecessarily. That's unconscionable. So if this is going to get to the point where we're going to run out of resources, and we've seen that that happens in other places, then you've got to do everything you can to stop that from happening. The time to do that is usually well in advance of that event actually happening. Somebody the other day said, it's always darkest before the dawn. And what we just talked about with the hospital situation in December and probably January, that's the dark part of it. The dawn part of it is science and evidence has brought us at least two vaccines and probably uh, more on the horizon. Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Vitalist Spark podcast. I'm your host, John Ford, and today's COVID-19 roundtable is a little schizophrenic. On the one hand, we can see the light at the end of the tunnel in the form of pending emergency use authorizations and vaccine rollouts. On the other hand, you can expect somewhere between 36 and 70 Americans to die just in the time it takes for you to listen to this podcast episode at regular speed. In Arizona, case counts are at new highs, hospital capacities are being strained, and there is no sign that any of these numbers will soon peak or decrease. In fact, the sobering reality is that the opposite is true. In the near term especially, we need to take extra special care of ourselves and our communities. As you'll hear from our guests in this episode, we've got to do everything we can using what we now know. Three factors determine potential for infection, people, space, and time. More people equals more risk, less space equals more risk, and longer time equals more risk. There's a big difference between a well-spaced walk in the park and a small indoor bar that's filled with people. Bars and restaurants have been shown to be more risky for COVID-19 by a significant factor. The CDC is urging us to limit travel and to limit the number of people at gatherings. Do your best, Arizona. Wash up, mask up, and maintain physical distancing to help manage the risks of people, space, and time. All right, let's get to it. It's time to talk about the latest information on vaccines, but also what's happening with community spread and healthcare systems as of December 7, 2020. It is early December, a very challenging and tumultuous time for COVID-19. Luckily for us, our roundtable is here to discuss everything that's going on. Welcome back first to Mr. Will Humble. Will, how are you? I'm okay. Glad to have you here. Dr. Joshua LeBaire from ASU, how are you, sir? I am doing all right. Glad to have you. And Dr. Amish Shah, how are you, sir? Doing really well. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks, all three of you, for being here. Let's get started. Josh, the numbers are crazy. Yeah. The, well, we're setting all-time records in the state of Arizona for n- new cases per day. Uh, that's not the kind of record we want to be setting, so that's disappointing. And then, of course, all the appropriate other statistics are following along, as you would predict. So hospital beds are increasing. ED beds are rocketing. ICU beds are rocketing. None of these things do we want to see. And we're close to or at the same numbers we were at last summer, even with our better management of cases and a more outpatient management. So not good. Well, the difference between now and the summer is we probably have less mitigation efforts in place officially. 
That's another huge issue. One of the things that worries me the most is that last summer when we hit those all-time records, first of all, we'd already had in place policies that were enforcing mitigation, which we don't have now. And at that time, when you looked at those rising numbers, the rate of rise was concave down. So things were starting to slow down as we were approaching a peak. But we are still concave up in our curves, if you look at the modeling curves, and we have no mitigation factors in place. Plus, on top of that, last summer, there was the possibility to bring in nurses from out of state to help out because it was the summertime and Arizona stood out as one of the few places that had a lot of cases. Now, Arizona is one of many places that have a lot of cases, and we can't get nurses in from out of state. Adding a bed is not as easy as just having a bed. You have to have a nurse to man that bed, and we can't do that now. Plus, we're headed into the winter months, which is when we typically have our highest concentration of patients in the hospitals. And the summertime is when we have our lowest census in the hospital. So everything doesn't look good right now. Josh just had the nail on the head, all those things right there. A really good summary of what, what's going on. So, Will, just after we met last time, we had Governor Ducey come to the podium and say he was going to bring in 500 nurses. He was going to make funding available for that. And we're going to be OK. Your thoughts? Well, the one thing at the press conference last week that was useful is the additional $60 million that are going out to hospitals to help them outcompete the other states that are trying to get ICU trained nurses and others, respiratory therapists and, and folks like that to help treat the coming deluge of uh, patients. So, so that was the one thing I think that was useful is that additional $60 million and maybe that will help some of our hospitals to be in a better position to outcompete other states dollar for dollars per hour wise for some of that critical staff. But other than that, there was nothing in that press conference that's going to make a iota bit of difference either now or into January. And so we don't have any mitigation measures in place. Yes, when the bars were allowed to open back towards the late part of the summer, they had to sign attestations agreeing that they would follow mitigation measures. But when you look at what actually happened, you see that the state has only issued 11 enforcement actions on those tens of thousands of businesses in the last three months. That's not robust enforcement of those mitigation measures that those businesses agreed to when they signed attestations that they would follow them. To me, that's one of the root causes of how we ended up where we are. We'd still maybe be in a hospital crisis, even with better enforcement, but at least we would have been doing everything we could. Also, if we had had a statewide face covering mandate that focused on businesses going back to the, where the evidence pointed that that was a useful intervention, we could have at least benefited from that. And we still might have had a hospital crisis in December, but not the likes of which we're about to experience. Because uh, we missed all those weeks and months of opportunities to have better enforcement, now we're in a position where we're in exponential growth, as Josh just talked about with all the models. To be honest, there's nothing that the governor could have done about what's going to happen in December. But if he had recognized where we really are, based on Josh, your team's models and the folks at U of A, what he could have done is say, we're going to do another pause with the bars, have restaurants go to takeout. And that would help us emerge from what's coming earlier in January but it's not going to help in December. If he were to do it now, it might have some benefit later on in January. And so that's the thing is when you miss opportunities and can't benefit from time for these interventions to work, then you put yourself in a box and paint yourself in a corner and that's what's happening. Dr. Shaw, I'm kind of curious 
what you've seen at work. And I'm guessing it's not pretty. And I, I suppose the hospital ethics teams are getting ready to make those crisis standards of care decisions. Is that right? So in the emergency department, we've certainly seen an uptick, myself personally, in terms of the number of people that are coming in that are testing positive, that are talking about their family members and testing positive, And so therefore wanting tests. Again, as the numbers rise, then the number of critical people, that's a lot less compared to the overall number, but the number of critical people that show up to the ER is also rises. As far as how these folks are talking about mitigation measures, my understanding, if we've looked at the mitigation measures are going into place, that's what I just keep being told. If you look at the AZDHS curve of the ICU beds that are in use right now, COVID beds, non-COVID beds, you can see that the COVID beds are steadily eating up more and more of the capacity, but we are still reducing the number of non-COVID beds. My understanding is that we're not expanding the universe of the ICU beds. We did do this in the summer when we had a peak and the goal was never to hit crisis standards of care. And we didn't do that over the summer. Like you guys talked about, I am worried that could now happen. It seemed that we had passed through this first wave. And now it seems that on the second wave, again, we're, we're possibly getting to that point. And as Josh mentioned, usually during the winter is when we have a greater demand for beds overall without COVID. These are all worrisome things. Dr. Shaw, you're a unique individual who has feet in both worlds. You are both a legislator and an emergency room physician. From both of those sides, from your perspective, how would you look at a plan for moving forward if you were the guy who could make the call? That's a... It's a horrible question, I know. It is a really, really tough question. At the end of the day, you cannot let people die unnecessarily. That's unconscionable. So if this is going to get to the point where we're going to run out of resources, and we've seen that that happens in other places, then you've got to do everything you can to stop that from happening. The time to do that is usually well in advance of that event actually happening, if you believe that that's what's going to happen with some reasonable certainty. And that's what causes so much consternation out there. You do have to have public buy-in. Not everybody has to agree, but People also do have to be willing to go along with what you're talking about, and you have to be able to tell them exactly why you're doing what you're doing. We can have every mandate in the world, but if nobody listens to the mandate, you're not going to arrest everybody. The public trust in the faith really matters and counts. Dr. Deborah Burks this Sunday talked about the fact that there was a great deal of confusion due to the various different perspectives being messaged by people who have authority. We're looking at close to crisis standards of care and a whole lot of confusion out there. Is there a way out of this box? There's been something that's been really bugging me for a long time. I read about in in an interview that The Atlantic did with Barack Obama. He talked about the idea of an epistemological crisis. In the medical profession, at least, we pride ourselves in learning and then teaching our residents and teaching others how to understand the nature of evidence. What is evidence? Evidence is the reason any of us know anything <laughs> at all. What is knowledge? Why, why do you have anything such as knowledge? Because you have evidence for it. What is evidence? Why should we learn what forms of evidence are better than other forms of evidence? And it's not just COVID-19 these days. There are other things that are going on 
in the world that makes us really worried that a lot of people aren't paying attention to what is the actual evidence that lets us know what's going on in the world. That creates distrust. I think some people do want to take advantage of that for things like political power or influence. And that's not leading people to a better place. I don't think that leads to a better society. That leads us to bad outcomes. And that's something that we've got to try harder to get ourselves like squarely focused on. It's kind of one of the underpinnings of making all of this happen in the right way. I have a feeling that people on this podcast kind of agree on a lot of what needs to be done. What are the facts? What are some reasonable guesses and why we make those guesses? We, we almost take for granted that we understand what evidence is and what evidence is better than other evidence. But the world is not this podcast. So true. Will, you regularly have talked about more executive action, more mitigation efforts. To Dr. Shaw's point about where the public will is, if you were the guy, making those decisions? How would you balance public sentiment with the need to act? Here's the thing. Let me talk first about evidence because Dr. Shaw was talking about evidence. We have a lot more evidence now than we had in April about where this virus amplifies. It amplifies mostly in indoor environments that are closed, where people don't wear masks. And we know a lot of times it has to do with alcohol too. So that's the combination of environmental factors that amplifies this virus. And so if I was suddenly in charge, I would say, I apologize for not taking action earlier. And that's on me. And I have to tell you, it's unacceptable that we're going to just allow people to die under the crisis standards of care. And I'm going to do everything we can to avoid that. We're going to focus on interventions that have the best opportunity to get us out of this as soon as we can. And so therefore, I'm closing bars for the next six weeks, we'll reassess at that point. And we're going to do a statewide face covering mandate where the enforcement is focused on businesses and then have restaurants go back to just take out service so that we can avoid all that long stay time. And those are the things that I think that would have an opportunity to get us out of this earlier in January as opposed to in February. And I would explain that I'm going to use my CARES Act money for the purpose that it is intended which is to create a safety net to help the people that will be most directly affected by that intervention. And so I would release CARES Act money to improve our unemployment compensation system so that we're not last in the entire country in terms of what that pays per month. And I'd use the CARES Act money to do that or the rainy day fund or a combination. But one of the things that irritated me at the press conference last week was the governor said, well, I'm not going to do any interventions like closing bars for example, because we don't have the kind of safety net in place anymore that we had back over the summer. Because during the summer, the federal government was paying $600 a week for unemployment compensation for people that were put out of the work during the pandemic. But there is CARES Act money sitting there that he could use uh, using executive action to get unemployment insurance back up to something more reasonable. But because he's saving it, my understanding is that $400 million were backfilled into the state general fund of CARES Act money in the state agencies. That's an example of money that could have been used for the purposes it was intended to create a safety net to help alleviate the pain that people suffer when you have to do these really stringent mitigation measures like closing bars and having restaurants go back to takeout service. Josh, one of the things that struck you as Dr. Berg spoke this weekend was her 
comment that Sunbelt states seem reluctant to issue orders now that they were willing to issue orders this past spring. And she doesn't know why. Do you? I think it is surprising. And I I just want to make a couple of comments in agreement, but also slightly different angle from both Dr. Shaw and, and Will Humble. I think about this a little bit like smoking. There is just an extraordinary amount of evidence to link smoking to all kinds of bad outcomes. I'm a cancer doctor by training, and I can tell you that the risk induced by smoking outweighs all of the other risk factors for lung cancer combined, just smoking. And I think most people get that. And yet, despite this evidence, there are some people who are just going to smoke. They know it's bad for them. They understand it's bad for them, but they're going to do it. Now, if you tell them they're not allowed to smoke in a building or they're not allowed to smoke at workplace, or you tell them they can't smoke in a restaurant, they'll do that. They'll follow the rules. But with the evidence, they're not going to do it. And I think that there's a similar dynamic at play here. I think most people now get that mask wearing reduces the virus. And I think most people understand that sitting indoors without a mask on is going to transmit the virus. But unless you pass a rule that tells them not to do it, they're going to do it. Um, And they walk around, they see other people doing it, and they think, well, if they can do it, why can't I do it? So we may be at a point now where we've convinced that those fractional people that need to follow the mitigation effectors on their own, those people are doing it. But there's this other group out there that just aren't going to do it until we we pass some rules. And I think that's where policies are just going to be necessary. That's my sense of it. I have no data to prove that, but that's what I think is going on. Well, A bar owner somewhere on the East Coast, I believe it was New York, stated that he had an independent country, if you will, and that he was not going to follow New York's lockdown orders. He kept his bar open over the weekend. Police came to shut him down on Sunday morning, and he hit one of the policemen with his car. What kind of public health situation are we in? Have we ever seen anything like this before? I don't think that we've seen anything like this since 1917, 1918, with the influenza pandemic back then. Really, it has been 100 years since we've had something like this, but we have something that they didn't have 100 years ago, which is what Dr. Shaw was talking about and Josh and his team work on so hard, which is evidence. And so we have now the ability to learn things that they didn't, they were unable to understand back in, in 1917. And there will always be stories like what you just said about people who are unwilling to comply. And that's why we have the criminal code. All right, let's switch. Let's talk vaccines. I'm just watching my newsfeed right now, waiting for an EUA to come through on these two vaccines. What are you excited about? What do you anticipate going forward with vaccines? Will? I'm super excited about it. I think Thursday, the 10th, is when the FDA's advisory committee is meeting on the Pfizer vaccine. On the 17th, that's the next Thursday after that, they're meeting on the Moderna vaccine. Those committees have the phase three data in hand and have had the phase three data now for quite some time. I expect them to make a recommendation to approve emergency use authorization. And I expect Commissioner Hahn to grant that approval probably on December 11th for Pfizer and on December 18th for the Moderna vaccine. And I think we can anticipate early doses coming out and going out to those high priority populations within a week, 10 days for sure, maybe less than that. It's interesting if you look at the differences between the two vaccines terms of what's required in terms of cold chain and how many doses you have to use when you open the box. The, the Pfizer vaccine, it seems to me, lends itself more to mass vaccination events like at hospitals where they can keep that cold chain going because that's the vaccine that needs to be about 94 degrees below zero Fahrenheit 
And when you open a box, you have to almost use a thousand doses within a short period of time. So to me, Pfizer looks like a mass vaccination type of product and the Moderna looks like it's a lot more flexible. So it seems to me, if I was in charge, I'd be focusing the Pfizer vaccine on healthcare workers in those big institutional settings like hospitals. And then a week later, the Moderna vaccine should be shipped. That looks to me like more of a vaccine that would work better in assisted living and skilled nursing facilities because you don't have that cold chain requirement and you don't have to vaccinate as many people as fast. Somebody the other day said it's always darkest before the dawn. And what we just talked about with the hospital situation in December and probably January, that's the dark part of it. The dawn part of it is science and evidence has brought us at least two vaccines and probably uh, more on the horizon with AstraZeneca. And I think we talked about last week how the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are this brand new messenger RNA technology, which is just phenomenal. The speed at which the researchers across the world came out with these vaccines enrolled people in the trials. Fortunately, we had people like Dr. Shah who volunteered for trials. I'm super optimistic of the vaccines. I think the UK. Right, Josh? Didn't the UK, they're, already they're running through the National Health Service right now, they're vaccinating people with the yeah. Pfizer vaccine. Josh, your friend and colleague, Dr. Fauci, very rarely has to walk something back. But last week, he said he thought the UK rushed the process. We've talked on this program before. And the one caveat that we always have to say here is that we have one shot to get it right. My worry is not only do we have to provide the vaccine and does it have to get approved, but people have to be willing to take it. And if anyone along the way perceives that there's a problem, if, if there are side effects, if there are complications or anything like that were to happen, then we could undo a lot of good because it would make people very nervous. I mean, there are, there are people who are still nervous about whether or not they're going to take the vaccine. And we want to make sure when we get it out, it, we, you know, we do it right. I mean, it's important to remember that in this first round of vaccines, we are not going to budge the overall population numbers of people infected with COVID. We're going to be immunizing an important cohort, the medical personnel cohort, so that they don't transmit the virus and they're critical workers, so we need to take care of them. Also vaccinating some of the most at-risk individuals. And so that's great because we will, we hope, limit the number of people that need to use ICUs and get in the hospital and all that stuff. But the overall population numbers of infected people is not going to budge. It's going to take another half a year before that happens. So people need to remember that for the time being, we still have to wear masks. We still have to follow mitigation factors. We still have to avoid all this interpersonal contact until we really do get it out in the bulk. Without a doubt, it will be a game changer if it can limit the number of people in the hospitals. Dr. Shaw, we've talked on this podcast about the availability of the vaccine will probably match up with people's desire to take it. We saw early research a month ago that said about 50% of the U.S. wants to take it. That was before any of the results on efficacy and safety were released. Dr. Paul Offit, who's a vaccinologist and recently presented on a Journal of American Medical Association webinar, said, I think that just changed. I think this is going to be like the Beanie Baby phenomenon, and everybody's going to want it as soon as it's available. Your take? Just anecdotally from my own experience, talking to people who are patients, colleagues, just people I know, it varies with the risk that people perceive themselves to be under. So people that are older or at higher risk, I think, do see it differently. They are more willing to go out there and do it. I think one of the things that changes people's minds is when you get an FDA approval, right? Even if it's an emergency use, especially if you tell people, which is that in 40,000 people in both of those trials, 
they didn't really see any serious adverse effects. So I think that that's kind of just from my basic experience, that's how I, I think people will view this. And I've certainly said the same thing, which is that the practice of medicine means that you weigh risk against reward. So there's the risk of you getting an adverse reaction from this thing, or I guess possibly also the idea that it doesn't work. And then there's the risk of you getting the virus and maybe not even having something happen to you, but, but to people around you. So I think that when, when people make those decisions for themselves, and if, if they're talking to their physicians, they're talking to healthcare providers that they really trust, then that will become a, an easier decision for them to, to go ahead and want the vaccine. I want to go back just one second to what Dr. Levera was talking about earlier with the smoking analogy. I thought that was like really fascinating. It's really interesting because the guy who brought us from a place of not understanding what that evidence was to a national, even a worldwide consensus on the dangers of smoking was a guy named C. Everett Koop, who was in the Reagan administration way back when. Oh, how times have changed. <laughs> and if you remember, it was kind of a surprise to the Reagan administration. Now I was, I was like four at the time. So I, was, I was pretty sharp, but I, I don't have that vivid of a memory of, of what was going on back then. But by, by all accounts, they didn't expect him to go on this almost a crusade against smoking in the way he did. HIV as well. Yeah. Today, there's no smoker out there who thinks that this is a safe thing to do. No, nobody really believes that. But we've had time. It didn't happen overnight either. We had time for people to adjust to a new consensus and a reality. And this is where this becomes really crucial. We have had not as much time and politics are intervening. So that's where, again, I bring it back to, it really is an incumbent upon leaders. And I agree with Will to a certain extent. You make the rules and people follow the rules and most people follow the rules. But we're seeing now a chunk of people who just simply are not comfortable with evidence. That's the challenge, I think, politically of our time yeah. today. Well, no less than Dr. Arthur Kaplan, famed bioethicist, says that he thinks the same is true in terms of the efficacy of the vaccines. He thinks it's going to flip the trust issue completely and that people are going to clamor for this vaccine. If that were the case, do you think we could meet that demand? Here's what I think is going to happen is that this is the supply and demand. thing. Early on, there's going to be far more demand than supply for this vaccine. And so that's why you have to set the priority groups and try to keep fidelity to those priority groups when you're doing mass vaccination or vaccination clinics and that kind of thing. As we progress through the spring and into the early summer and the supply increases, then demand is going to also be decreasing because people who really wanted it have already gotten it. And you start to get into more of the populations that are either vaccine hesitant or don't see it as an issue really anymore, or even anti-vax type of populations. And so demand is going to outstrip supply until at least April. And then after that, May, June, July, it'll flip, I think, and you'll have a greater supply than you have people standing in line anymore. And by then, because we will have vaccinated some of these very high-risk people, you'll start to see pressures decrease in the hospital system. The news cycle will start changing to other kinds of things. And then it'll be more and more challenging to get 
the last folks that you need to get up to herd immunity. So I think basically what is the back of the envelope calculation, but we need about 5 million of us, 7.2 million Arizonans to get vaccinated. If you add in the people that get sick and recovered, that's enough to get you to herd immunity. So I think the first three and a half million people will be easy. And then it starts to get harder from there. But there's a lot of things you could do besides just convincing people. The easiest stuff to do is make it cheap, make it easy, make it convenient, make it so that young people will not have to pay money for it. So there's things we could do to facilitate people getting vaccinated. And that's the logistics and the policy decisions about how you roll it out and where the access points are. The other thing is we haven't talked about this yet, but the AstraZeneca vaccine, that's the vaccine that we'll probably be seeing in the spring. And that one doesn't have the cold chain requirements and all. That's a simple vaccine. It's an adenovirus vaccine, not mRNA. Hmm. So that's one that'll be easy to do and handle in clinics all over the place. And by the way, the contracts that HHS signed with those companies, the biggest contract by far is with AstraZeneca. Pfizer and Moderna have contracts, but they're much smaller than the AstraZeneca Hmm. vaccine. Just this morning, a news clip was released with Secretary Azar saying that by the second quarter, any American who wants the vaccine can get the vaccine. And then you have a competing headline that says, of the vaccines that the United States pre-bought, if you will, only about 10% of that inventory is available at this time. Are we in a position to vaccinate lots of people quickly, or are we on a long ramp up? All I know is that Kara said, director of the health department, she said last week, she's heard from HHS that they expect to get 380,000 doses of vaccine in Arizona by December 31st. That's pretty good. It's not enough to cover all the tier A1 groups that they identified last week, but it's a good start. Now, let's talk about the rest of phase three. You brought up AstraZeneca. That's going to be hopefully the third approved vaccine. What else do you see in the pipeline that you are optimistic about? There's 11 vaccines (laughs) in clinical trials right now. 11 in the US. So vaccines are the way out of this. And there's a lot of logistics that have to happen. These vaccines require a booster. That means you got to find people and bring them back in and get them that booster shot. And it has to be the same brand. So there's a lot of nuts and bolts that have to happen from the reporting system, the billing, the cold chain, the this and the that, you know, this is not as easy thing where it it makes it sound easy sitting here talking on a podcast, but there's a lot of details involved in a mass vaccination campaign. Dr. Shaw, what about you? When I hear 380,000 for the state of Arizona, that makes me kind of hopeful. Seems pretty good. I mean, if you consider what the the total number of positive cases have been in this state, what that would mean, healthcare workers specifically being at the very top. So in first responders, so it's kind of stopping people from getting nosocomial infections and et cetera. So I honestly think it's difficult to predict and I'm not going to make a prediction on it. Josh, we do have this two-sided story right now, the incredible optimism about vaccines and their availability soon. And then we have what everybody has described multiple times as a dark, dark time and a dark winter. Is it possible, like we did several weeks back, to boil it down to one viewpoint on what's happening right now as it relates to COVID-19? I think it's going to be hard to integrate the two. I think it's true that the short-term, near-term 
is going to be rough. I mean, let's face it, COVID is now the number three killer in the state. And it's inching up towards catching up with heart disease and cancer in terms of overall death. And of course, it's done that in a matter of months, not even years, right? We've got lots of patients in ICUs now with this disease, and some of them are going to die for sure. So yes, we're getting better at managing it, but we've got a lot of cases. That said, I do think that once we start vaccinating patients and once we start getting their boosters in, because as everyone's pointed out already today, you're not really fully protected until you've had that booster. And that takes there's several weeks between the first dose and the booster dose before people are going to be protected. That will start having an impact without a doubt. It is the light at the end of the tunnel, but it's just, it's not right there. Something that we have yet to explore fully are the secondary effects of this virus on people, even who don't end up in a hospital. We behave as though we know everything there is to know about this virus, and we hardly know anything about this virus. It's only been around for a year. Plenty of examples in virus history of viruses that people have minimal infection or side effects with when they get infected, but have huge late-term effects. You could get neurological diseases. You can get diseases that destroy your immune system. You get diseases that cause cancer from viruses. All of those, we have plenty of examples of that in human history and, and in recent human history. Not to say that we know that this virus will do those things, but we don't know that it doesn't. We really want to get to herd immunity for sure. We want to stop this thing. Sooner the better. So let's just hope that this deployment of vaccine works and that we can convince everyone to be willing to take it. I was thinking about it and 380,000 is roughly going to be about 5% of the state. We have about seven something million people in the state of Arizona. Think about all the people who've already had COVID-19. And so you add 5% onto that. Maybe I have more of a question for Will and Dr. LeBaire. And that is that if we're talking about giving that vaccine to certain groups of people, say healthcare workers who generally are might be more familiar even with infection control protocols and keeping themselves a little safer. And then we also give it to some individuals that might be at high risk. For example, residents of nursing homes, people who are seniors, but yet our cases, the demographics with regard to who's actually getting infected these days still tends to be the younger cohort. So we may not necessarily see a decrease in cases, even with the vaccination. That's right. That's exactly right. We're not giving it to the people who are going to decrease the caseload. We're giving it to the people who are are at higher risk of death. But those people are, we we think we're we're doing things to try to mitigate them specifically from getting the virus. So I think that if I had one prediction, that would be it. That what we're going to see is that these initial doses may not do much for the caseload. But perhaps we're we're doing a lot of good anyway. It's not for the caseload. It's to try to give some relief in the hospital so that the people that do get sick with it and that do need hospital care, whether that's a ICU type of care or regular ward bed, they can get treated with the normal standard of care with the right kind of ratios, have a respiratory therapist when they need that kind of care. So it's all about, I think, giving people an opportunity to have an optimal level of care, but we're still see that it's not going to make a demonstrable impact on the number of cases. It's going to be those non-pharmaceutical interventions that do that. If anything does, it takes some pressure off of the necessity for some of those interventions that cause that kind of economic disruption too. The other thing, just really quick back of the envelope is the idea of segmenting the population. What percentage of people in Arizona are above 65 years of age? The answer to that, I looked up 18%, something like that. 
just round it and make it like an even 20. So, so at 7 million people, now you're talking about 1.4 million people, 300,000 doses of, of the vaccine isn't going to get to that entire population either. And we're not going to get to that for a while. When I think about how to make policy for the state, and I'm thinking about you know our role as legislators, I think that's something also to kind of keep in mind that just a s- sense of what the numbers are out there, how many people actually are out there and need need it. Yes, I would want to give it to everybody over 65 as as a higher priority, and I think that that is part of the the deal. So how many of those people are there? Well, 1.5 million, roughly something in that range. And then how many doses are, are going to be out and when are those going to be out? I, I think that that really does kind of help us chart the next few months. Last question of the day, the walkout message. Everybody knows that the last thing you say to an audience is the one thing they remember. <laughs> Given it is December 7th and we're headed into the end of the year, for the next two weeks until our next roundtable, what is your walkout message? Josh, start with you. We still need to do the mitigation factors. Stay at home unless you need to go out. It is as bad out there as it was in the summer, probably worse. Don't be getting together with folks that aren't in your immediate household in person. Do it by electronic means. Wear masks whenever you have to go out. It's bad out there and the vaccine isn't yet in the hands where it needs to be. So it's still time to be protective. Will, you're up next. What's your walkout message? It's just simple. Please do yourself a favor and avoid getting this virus in the next month. Because if you do and you need hospital care, I'd just say you're in a world of hurt. People aren't going to be able to visit you, be in a situation where resources are stretched very thin. The staff that are helping you to the best of their ability will be exhausted. Just do yourself a favor and stay out of harm's way for the next couple of months. Dr. Shaw, your walkout message. These guys summed it up perfect. That's exactly what I would say. It's, the vaccine is here. It's coming very soon. It's around the corner. Stay safe for just a little while longer. You're, we're almost at the end. We talked about how the rollout is going to be in phases and your turn will come up when it comes up, but just stay safe until that. There's there's no reason to have a bad outcome in just the final few months of this. So let's please try and get through it. There's a lot of hope on the horizon and, and let's just try to get through this, be, be kind, be respectful, be empathetic, ask critical questions, learn what you can about what's going on and be safe for the remaining few months that, that we have until the vaccine comes out. Thank you, Dr. Shaw. Thank you, Will. And thank you, Josh. As Josh said, COVID-19 is now the number three killer in the state for 2020. As Will said, it has been a hundred years since we faced a pandemic challenge like this. And as Dr. Shaw said, We just need you to do your best to stay safe as the vaccines roll out. Please help us avoid hospital capacity issues and crisis standards of care. Now is truly the time to double down on healthy, low-risk choices. Stay as safe as you can. Remember that the CDC is urging us to limit travel and to limit the number of people at family gatherings. Do your best, Arizona. Wash up, mask up, and maintain physical distancing to help manage the risks. If you haven't already, get your flu shot. And remember that masking up earns you double health benefits, limiting transmission of COVID-19 and the flu. Let's be in this together in order to get out of this together. Our roundtable returns in two weeks. In the meantime, our back catalog of episodes awaits your ears, especially episode 52 on all the options for health coverage, including Obamacare open enrollment that is only available through December 15th, or episode 50, which introduced you to Vitalist Health Data Dashboard. There is a lot to listen to, including guests from across the state and national experts too. 
Visit us on the web at vitalisthealth.org slash podcast. Check out all of our current and past episodes on Spotify or simply reach into that podcast app you're using right now and select another show to find out what's going on related to health and well-being in Arizona. That's it for this episode. The takeaways from this dialogue belong at the family dinner table as much as they do in your place of business, in city and town halls, and in the domains of healthcare and public health. So please, share this independent episode far and wide. Subscribe to the Vitalist Spark podcast to get notified as soon as new episodes are released. Or listen to the Vitalist Spark just like you listen to your favorite music on Spotify. Give us your feedback wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can also give us your input the old-fashioned way. Your corrections, complaints, and compliments, they're all welcomed by emailing us at feedback at vitalisthealth.org. Finally, remember this. With great responsibility comes great power. We'll see you back on the road to well-being soon. <laughs>